0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Advancing the Standard of Care for Patients with Hyperkalemia Insights and Evidence for Clinical Pharmacy Practice, featuring Dr. George Backris from the American Heart Association Comprehensive Hypertension Center at the University of Chicago School of Medicine in Chicago, and Dr. Joanna Hudson from the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash YVS860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Hello, I'm Dr. George Backris, and I'm joined today by uh, Dr. Joanna Hudson, and we're going to talk to you today about advancing the standard of care for patients with hyperkalemia. So let's talk about, first of all, the prevalence of hyperkalemia. In the general population, it's about 2 to 3%. If you then look at all hospitalized patients, depending on the definition of hyperkalemia used, it can be anywhere from one to eleven percent. And if you're talking about greater than six, it's about one percent. So again, depends on the definition. Patients with heart failure basically are going to have an issue with uh, hyperkalemia more than anybody else because of cardiac arrhythmias. MACE and death rates were consistently lower in patients treated with RAS blockade than those not treated with RAS blockade. Why am I telling you this? Because RAS blockade is mandatory therapy for people with heart failure and small changes in potassium, as you'll see later, is not a reason to be stopping the drug. CKD, another mandatory RAS inhibitor category. And again, you can have hyperkalemia rates there depending on a number of factors that we'll talk about can be anywhere from 5 to 50%. Again, not a reason to be stopping this therapy. It's a reason to modify it. So when you put it all together, basically what I just told you, you can look at this in terms of high cardiovascular risk and hyperkalemia occurring in people with basically diabetes, kidney disease, heart failure, and atherosclerotic disease. And all of this, as you'll see soon, simply depends not on the disease, but on dietary intake and level of kidney function. And so I think it's important, this is a very large analysis that was published a couple of years ago from a database looking at all-cause mortality by defined levels of hyperkalemia. And what I want you to notice here is if you have the combination of heart failure chronic kidney disease and diabetes, hyperkalemia and those people may be defined as five rather than six because, as you can see, all-cause mortality starts to increase when you're at the level of about five. Other things like diabetes, heart failure, the levels that traditionally are being looked at can be looked at, but that combination in that small subgroup is associated with higher mortality at higher K levels. Now, the cost of uh, health care for readmission rates after patients with hyperkalemia are discharged is very, very high. And we're going to get into how we can fix that. But I think you need to be aware of the fact that this study actually looked at one year outcomes after discharge and what the costs were. And if you look at people with hyperkalemia, you can see it's double practically almost double what people without hyperkalemia was. And again, this looks at 30-day readmissions, outpatient visits, ED visits, the whole ball of wax. So hyperkalemia is very costly if we don't do a good job taking care of it when it first occurs. Now, dietary potassium is important. The bottom line is in people who you know are at high risk for hyperkalemia, Basically, you wanna reduce the potassium in their diet. A low potassium diet is almost impossible to follow chronically. So don't expect people to do that. But educate them about use of drugs like nonsteroidals, educate them about potassium supplements. Guess what, Mrs. Dash is a potassium supplement of sorts. Uh, Salt substitute is a potassium substitute because they're all based in potassium. So you need the patient education. A dietician is vital here if you have one, to help educate the patient about high potassium foods. And again, we don't have time to get into this, but I think it's very important that that can change potassium as much as 0.5 milliequivalents. Now, there are many mechanisms that control serum potassium. And I think it's important to understand that if you're using certain agents, they're going to lead to higher potassium rates. By the way, Drugs that cause shifts in extracellular potassium. So when you have hyperkalemia, insulin and beta-2 agonists definitely help. Beta blockers, on the other hand, will tend to increase serum potassium because they block potassium going into the cell. Dijoxin, another culprit. Obviously, the MRAs, blockers of aldosterone, are going to be a factor, and the RAS blockers that you all know. Heparin in the hospital is a culprit as well. So you need to understand the kidney handles 90% of the body's potassium and the gut, the distal colon, handles 10%. So as you reduce kidney function, you're going to have issues with potassium. Now, again, when you look at this, I just mentioned the relationship and now you can see this. This is a major point you need to walk away with. The predictors of hyperkalemia are an EGFR of less than 45 and or a potassium of greater than 4.5, greater than or equal to 4.5. And those patients that have those two numbers, if you're adding aldosterone receptor blockers, if you're adding or increasing doses of ACE inhibitors, your risk for hyperkalemia is going to be much higher than people that have better kidney function. And again, if your GFR is below 30, then you know you're gonna have very high risk for hyperkalemia and you need to do things to watch it. Now, the problem is that a lot of these patients who could benefit from RAS blockade and other therapies don't get them because physicians are afraid to give it because of hyperkalemia. So really this is about how do you enable those vital agents that reduce mortality and preserve function of the kidney and reduce heart failure risk. How do you do that? We're going to try to tell you. So when you look at this, this is very complex. I'm going to make it very simple for you. You need to be aware that the renin-angiotensin system is a key system, and you see all that to the left, is a key system that modulates potassium balance, and it also modulates a number of other things. And one of the things that is reduced for a short period of time is aldosterone with these agents. However, there's a bit of an escape. Nevertheless, if you have reduced kidney function, no matter what escape you have, you're going to have an issue. So NSAIDs, beta blockers, the transplant medications, cyclosporine, tacrolimus, diabetes itself, being very old because you have low kidney function all are going to contribute to genesis of hyperkalemia we've already talked about the problems with adrenal disease blockage of the renin of the mineralocorticoid receptors ketoconazole for those of you that use fungal agents is definitely one that's going to lend itself to that and obviously dr- drugs that affect the sodium channel so triamterene if you're using hydrochlorothiazide in combination with triamterene. If those of you that use the combo Bactrim, trimethoprim is definitely a component of that. That is definitely going to contribute to hyperkalemia. Amelioride, for sure. And, of course, Spiro and the other agents. So this is your laundry list of things to be careful when you're watching potassium and you're watching the risk. Before you, you see three different Oral-K binders, sodium polystyrene sulfonate, pteromir calcium sorbitrex, and sodium zirconium cyclosilicate. These are very distinctive. The two, uh, pteromir and uh, SZC, are the most recent. And to give you more information on that, please watch the following video.
2: Sodium polystyrene sulfonate, or SPS, is a polymer cation exchange resin. SPS is also a non-selective potassium binder. As SPS moves through the intestinal tract, it exchanges sodium for potassium and is eliminated by the fecal route. However, SPS is non-selective. It can also bind to other cations, including magnesium, calcium, or sodium. Pitiramir calcium sorbitex is a cation exchange polymer containing a calcium sorbitol counterion. Pateromere is a high-capacity potassium binder. As pitiramir moves through the intestinal tract, it exchanges calcium for potassium and is eliminated by the fecal route. Pitiramir works throughout the GI tract, but is specifically designed to bind potassium in the colon where the highest concentration of potassium is found. Pitiramir is selective for potassium, but can also bind to magnesium. Sodium zirconium cyclosilicate, or SZC, is an inorganic crystalline cation exchange polymer. SZC is a potassium binder that works throughout the intestinal tract. SZC exchanges hydrogen and sodium for potassium and is eliminated by the fecal route. SZC is highly selective for potassium. Other cations are too small to bind to SZC, including magnesium and calcium and sodium. SZC can also
1: bind to ammonium. Now, basically, just putting this whole thing together, people with kidney disease are at the highest risk of hyperkalemia. And it's specifically people with GFRs below 45 or already elevated potassiums on diuretics. I mean, as we've said earlier, greater than 4.5. So the question is, how can we minimize CV risk and maintain RAS blockade and minimize hyperkalemia How should we manage hyperkalemia in inpatients? And how do oral potassium binders fit in inpatient management of hyperkalemia? So we're going to present some clinical trial evidence to you and then give you some examples that we've encountered in our own practice as to how we think about hyperkalemia and how we treat it. So now I want to hand this over to Joanna, and she's going to walk you through the next step.
3: Thank you, George. I think everything that you've mentioned so far introduces the concepts that I'm going to get into at this point related to what do we do to minimize the cardiovascular risk and hyperkalemia risk. We've got so many agents that are available for the main disease states that you referenced, heart failure, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, but our challenges are how to best approach integrating those into therapy without inducing essentially hyperkalemia. So one of the issues, and I think this is something that we can all agree on, is that we really only know if someone has hyperkalemia if we look for it. There really are not symptoms, I mean, certainly in some cases there are symptoms, but it's often asymptomatic. And ultimately what we're trying to prevent is the most fatal consequence of hyperkalemia, which is cardiac arrhythmia. So in terms of looking for it, measuring potassium in patients who may be at risk is important and also doing ECGs for those who have what we consider an elevated potassium. And essentially looking at whether they have peak T waves, trying to prevent them from getting to the ultimate fatal incident, which is the sine wave and asystole, and the the cardiac arrhythmia that is ultimately uh, so important to prevent. So one of the issues that comes up is the variability in the definition of hyperkalemia. And this representation shows the normal range. We kind of think of this as roughly four to five, but also that there's variability in how hyperkalemia is really defined, whether that's five, five and a half, or six. They're all above the upper limit of normal, but there's differences in the action threshold at which people respond in terms of hyperkalemia management. So this is actually an algorithm. I had the opportunity to be involved in developing with a group of emergency department physicians as well as a nurse practitioner in that environment. And this is looking at acute management of hyperkalemia really in the ED setting, so all comers who have hyperkalemia. And I I will say there was much discussion about what threshold should be um, used as far as uh, managing and being concerned for hyperkalemia. And the agreement came to a potassium of five and a half So if you walk through this algorithm, and I'm not going to go through every detail here, but in the beginning, one thing that's important is looking at the patient's history. Do they have these key disease states that are risk factors, chronic kidney disease, heart failure, et cetera, because that may certainly change how we consider managing these patients and at what level of potassium we would be concerned. So certainly looking at ECG changes and making decisions based on the potassium level, repeat values of potassium and also ECG changes when that is available to be done, and that would be more important in the uh, emergency room setting. What other guidelines are out there that in- introduce different thresholds? Well, guidelines for heart failure, um, the ACC guidelines, as well as the European Society of, of Cardiovascular, uh, or the European Society of Cardiology, rather. And if you see here, the diagnostic threshold for both of these is a potassium above 5, Um, The ACC would actually implement an action threshold at 5.5, whereas the European guidelines recommend the diagnostic threshold of 5 as the action threshold, just giving you an idea that there's variability in the guideline statements that are out there. What about chronic kidney disease? Well, this is actually an algorithm that was recommended through the KDGO Controversies Conference on hyperkalemia. And Notice here, the threshold introduced is a potassium of above six that would warrant getting an ECG and then making decisions based on repeat values of potassium as well as the ECG findings. So my point of showing you this is really to discuss the fact that as Dr. Backris talked about with regard to what are the implications of a high potassium, we worry about mortality risk. You know, these variations in the thresholds for potassium are a little concerning, right? I think we have different uh, thresholds where we're comfortable, and certainly depending on the population that we're looking at, different guidelines are making different recommendations. Well, it's clear that we, whether we have a threshold of five, five and a half, or six, we know hyperkalemia is concerning, and we know that it can happen with the medication therapies that are recommended to treat these key disease states. So we know that RAS inhibition, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system inhibitors, are really foundational for guideline-directed medical therapy in many of these disease states. This slide shows heart failure reduced ejection fraction. And we're not walking through every aspect of this, but a key theme is that the therapies recommended in terms of guideline approaches for managing this disease state are RAS inhibition with an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor, an angiotensin receptor blocker. So that is foundational kind of the step two approach here considers what other therapies should be adding, added depending on other conditions the patient has. So for example, if the patient has creatinine clearance or an EGFR greater than 30, and their potassium is less than five, an aldosterone antagonist may be considered. Um, Looking at patients who tolerate an ACE or an ARB, this is where an ARNI, an angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor, would be considered as well. So it goes on down in terms of different treatment approaches, but RAS inhibition is foundational. What about in the kidney disease world? Well, the KDGO, the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcome Guidelines, certainly recommend RAS inhibition for patients with and without diabetes. And you'll, you'll notice here, the guideline statements recommend RAS inhibition for those with high blood pressure and CKD with albuminuria. Okay, The A3-level albuminuria is a stronger recommendation for that population. And a lower threshold of albuminuria in a patient with diabetes would warrant RAS inhibition. And another point that's made in those guidelines is that RAS in- inhibitors should be administered using the highest approved dose that is tolerated to achieve those benefits. This is similar to what we see in the diabetes guidelines, the ADA guidelines. And if we flip down to the bullet points two and three, recommend RAS inhibition as first-line therapy for hypertension in patients with diabetes and coronary artery disease. And here's the statement again, at the maximum tolerated dose for blood pressure treatment for patients with hypertension, diabetes, and significant proteinuria. So again, the message here is that we're trying to use our guideline-directed medication therapy in these populations and get them to the maximum tolerated doses. Now, are we able to achieve that? So this is an interesting uh, study or or compilation of studies looking at hyperkalemia and really the response in terms of RAS inhibitor dose in a variety of studies done in patients with CKD, heart failure, diabetes. And the point here is that patients with hyperkalemia, in many cases, had their dose reduced or the RAS inhibitor discontinued. So while I think a lot of clinicians may have that initial response when they see hyperkalemia, here are some of the potential outcomes that we need to think about. And this slide shows, for the various disease states that we just referenced, discontinuing the drug. Has a higher mortality than if we were able to achieve maximum doses. So patients who were able to continue RAS inhibition at the maximum doses had lower mortalities across the board in all these different disease states. So that's the clinical dilemma, right? We know that there is plenty of evidence supporting RAS inhibition with diabetes, with heart failure, with chronic kidney disease. But what do we do when we get into a situation of hyperkalemia? Do we decrease the dose? Do we discontinue altogether? I think that, the, as Dr. Backers mentioned, that is not really the approach we should be taking, but we have to think about how to best avoid and how to manage hyperkalemia. That may include some of the diuretic therapy uh, that a patient may be receiving that may help to manage potassium, so that we use those as needed, and adding a potassium binder. So that's kind of been the game changer with managing hyperkalemia uh, with these disease states. Well, what else do we have? Well, if we think about what's happened over the last, I've lost track of time, but five or six years in terms of a game-changing class of drugs, the sodium glucose co-transport uh, 2 inhibitors were recently added as another what we think of as pillar for treating heart failure, particularly reduced ejection fraction, although there's evidence now about preserved ejection fraction. But if we think of these pillars, we have RAS inhibition, we have beta blockers, mineral corticoid receptor antagonist, RNA therapy, and now SGLT2s. And on the right, you can see here the overall decline in mortality um, compared to placebo in patients who received uh, guideline-directed medication therapy and also the relative risk reduction. So clearly SGLT2s are now part of this and are contributor to the the lower mortality and, and better outcomes that we're seeing. What about other populations? Well, in addition to heart failure, if we look at the effects of SGLT2's inhibitors on mortality, cardiovascular events, heart failure events, and, you know the compilation or composite of kidney events, uh, and the relative risk reduction compared to placebo, we see benefits across the board in terms of being, um, you know, the advantages of using these agents. So this is just showing really the, the reduction in heart failure hospitalization, um, MI and composite kidney disease here that we see. So in the guideline statements for many of these disease states, we're seeing SGLT2 inhibitors now being integrated. So this is just showing the KDGO 2020 guidelines for diabetes management emphasizing the use of SGLT2 inhibitors. So they are now part of the regimen that we have to consider in addition to RAS inhibition. So you'll notice the statements here in the the box on the right show that, you know, metformin, still an appropriate choice based on the level of kidney function, But the statement now includes metformin plus an SGLT2 inhibitor is recommended for patients with uh, GFR greater than 30 um, as first-line therapy in patients with diabetes. And this was actually, these were statements developed before DAPA CKD, which would probably make the argument that we could use these even in patients without diabetes and patients with even reduced kidney function. So there's a lot of information uh, coming forth about SGLT2s. They're also recommended for patients, um, certainly with other disease states as well. And and we know that patients with chronic kidney disease have a lot of comorbid conditions, including cardiovascular disease, heart failure and, and as well. So a lot of combination therapies that we're using. Well, why are we talking about SGLT2s in this discussion? Well, it's interesting to see some of the post hoc analyses that have been done with SGLT2 inhibitor studies. And what I'm showing you here is a post hoc analysis of Credence. And just to remind everyone, Credence was a trial looking at canagliflozin compared to placebo in over 4,000 patients with type 2 diabetes and CKD who were on maximum tolerated RAS inhibitors. And this post hoc analysis looked at the incidence of hyperkalemia over the study period. And that was defined as reported hyperkalemia by the investigators or initiation of a potassium binder. And you can see that canagliflozin had significantly lower hyperkalemia um, incidence as, as we defined it compared to, to placebo. So that's an interesting finding and may suggest the lower risk of hyperkalemia may enable better use of our other therapies such as RAS blockade and perhaps mineral corticoid receptor antagonist in patients with CKD you know, with or without heart failure. There's also been um, analyses of of other studies. Um, This is showing really um, the adverse effects with SGLT2s um, or the the outcomes looking at SGLT2s and the risk of hyperkalemia. So this is analysis really looking at safety and efficacy in patients who received SGLT2s compared to placebo with or without a, a RAS inhibition. Okay, so this slide, if you look at the top of each of these sections, hyperkalemia was one of the outcomes that they looked at in terms of adverse events. And you can see, if you look on the left side, which favors SGLT2s, the left side of of the bar, um, those individuals who received an SGLT2 inhibitor, um, whether or not they were on RAS inhibition or not, had a lower incidence of hyperkalemia, significantly lower. And that was clearly um, more of the case in patients who were not on RAS inhibition, where hyperkalemia would be less of a risk. But I think this is interesting that we're seeing um, you know, different factors and associated with risk of hyperkalemia, depending on whether patients received an SGLT2. That's also been observed in a post-analysis of the Fidelio-KD trial that Dr. Bacris was the PI on and can certainly speak to. So just to remind everyone, this was a study that looked at uh, the use of um, finirinone in patients with type 2 diabetes and diabetic kidney disease, so over 5,000 patients, and finirinone was compared to placebo. So these patients also were on RAS inhibition. And if we think about the risk of hyperkalemia, that was one of the concerns that um, have been slated from the study was, did patients have to discontinue therapy because of hyperkalemia? So you can see here the hyperkalemia incidence that was reported, depending on the different thresholds, 5.5 versus 6. But the post hoc analysis looked at independent factors that were associated with risk of hyperkalemia. So if we look at this this analysis again, the lower risk is on the left, the higher risk is on the right side of, of the bar. And you can see that the risk factors associated with hyperkalemia were baseline potassium, Dr. Backers alluded to that earlier. So the higher the potassium at baseline, the more risk of hyperkalemia, which, which makes sense, the lower the GFR, and also whether they were on beta blocker use as well. And of course, the, the finerenone treatment itself as a risk. But if we look here at other drug therapies, diuretic use and SGLT2 inhibitors, we can see that SGLT2 inhibitors, there was less there was a lower risk of hyperkalemia. Okay, so this has been observed not only in the, the trials that we just alluded to, but also in this one looking at frenirinone, the mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. So that's, you know, food for thought, I think, in terms of, think- of considering all the drug therapies that we have with really good outcomes in patients with, you know, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, et cetera, and whether some of those have other effects on lowering the risk of hyperkalemia. So Dr. Backris, I'll just ask you um, briefly as we kind of make a transition and get into the studies, what are your thoughts on the risk of hyperkalemia with um, some of these treatments that we're using and, and some of the evidence that I just presented?
1: Well, Joanna, you made some very good points, and I just want to emphasize a couple of things. Number one, it's not the level of potassium that you should worry about. It's the speed with which it got there. So the people that really get into trouble are not people that had a slow rise in potassium over the span of a month. It's people that had an immediate rise within the span of a couple of days, and especially if they got into levels above 6. I had a patient that is well-known, advanced CKD, the GFR was in the 20s, came back from Germany, told me he didn't feel good. I sent him to the ER, his potassium was 7.1. EKG did not show anything except slightly peaked T-waves. That was it. But he was eating a lot of potatoes. He was having German food, enjoying himself, and this was it. Was he on a binder? No, he was not. Was he on a RAS blocker? Yes, he was. Was he on a diuretic? Yes, he was. Was he on an SGLT2? Yes, he was. So you can eat through a lot of these therapies. But I think it's important to keep in mind that as long as the patient's willing to cooperate with the diet, these agents, the SGLT2s for sure, the the diuretics, if you're using appropriate diuretics for the level of kidney function, not 12 and a half of hydrochlorothiazide when your GFR is 40, that's not going to work. So you need to be doing that, and then that will help you stave off uh, elevations. And so I think that's a very important approach, and I Want to thank you for showing all this data.
3: Yeah, and I think that's interesting. You know, we talked about different thresholds for action, and and you noticed you, you mentioned the timing of the the rise, and I think that's certainly why in the CKD world, you know, you talk to a nephrologist, and they may not be as concerned with a high potassium in somebody who's had CKD for for quite some time and may have adapted to some degree to a higher potassium level versus someone who comes into the ED that had completely normal potassium. And it rises very suddenly. So those are great points.
1: So, Joanna, just to make a point for the audience, what what you showed is when you showed the KDGO and we, you know, we said, look, you shouldn't do anything to six. Well, okay, I am a nephrologist and I was part of that group that put that together. So if you go to a nephrologist with a potassium of 5.4, they'll say, yeah, and what? So they're very used to seeing this. And they are really not, nothing bad ever happens until you get way into the sixes and sevens. And so, because it's always a gradual rise, but you need to always get a history to see if something acute happened.
3: Absolutely. Great. Well, at this time, I'll turn it back over to you to give us some information about some of the studies with the potassium binders.
1: All right. Very good. So um, I'm back. So these are contemporary approaches for hyperkalemia, both in the emergent setting, intermediate setting, and maintenance. Obviously, calcium gluconate or calcium chloride, which works faster, is critically important in the emergent setting because it stabilizes myocardial membranes. Obviously, insulin and beta-2 agonists are important because they will push K into the cell. But then you have the intermediate. And there's really what you want to do is you want to use the loop diuretics and sodium bicarbonate, especially sodium bicarbonate if there is acidosis, because as you change the pH, K will go into the cell. Dialysis, please, and you'll hear about this later, that is not the end-all, be-all. You're only going to remove 90 milliequivalents of K in about four hours, and that K is going to bounce right back. So that is something you can think about in a dialysis patient. That's fine but not in someone that's got reasonable kidney function where you can use other agents like diuretics and sodium bicarbonate. And then lastly for maintenance, you want to readjust the dose of the ACE inhibitor. You've got the other agents, SPS, patiromer, SCC, and certainly a low potassium diet. And then as a result of that, you can work with the patient to readjust things and potentially use the binders long-term and restore appropriate dosing of RAS blockade. Now, SPS, here we are, approved in 1958, and I can tell you the bar for approval was so low you could walk over it because things were very different then. I think the important finding here is we started looking at these things much more carefully. Uh, Rick Stearns and colleagues in 2010 published a paper that was really concerning because it basically showed colonic necrosis, especially if SPS was used with sorbitol. And then there was a a black box warning by the FDA the year before, and there's been a number of issues with this. And remember, SPS does not give you predictable potassium binding. You can get a lot or you can get a little. It depends. So if we look at the other binders, this is an analysis of how they work, and I alluded to this earlier in terms of mechanism of action, but you can see they all work in the colon. The time of onset is highly variable, but it's definitely within uh, 24 hours for most of them, and most of them it's actually within seven hours. The potassium binding, as I said, is variable with SPS. With Patiramir, you're getting a great uh, normalization within two days, and the SEC, within two to three hours, you're going to get a marked reduction. The big side effects with pateromere is constipation, period, end of discussion. That is by far the most common side effect. Hypomagnesemia I've never seen, and I've been using it for three years, but it's reported because the potassium will drop 0.2, 0.2 milligrams per deciliter. You will get edema if you use the high dose of SCC. If you use the low doses, you really don't get an issue and you will see a bit of a rise in the bicarb. So there are trials now that have been done, and let me kind of go through these with you. This is the harmonized trial for SCC. It's a double-blind phase three uh, trial that was published in JAMA back in 2014. It took people with Ks of greater than 5.1 and gave them a 48-hour open label of 10 grams of sec, which is, by the way, what you have to do when you initiate this uh, therapy. And then they randomized to different doses and gave the drug daily for a period of 28 days. And what they found was very nicely, if you can look over to the um, left, uh, depending on the dose, uh, the reduction in potassium, and you can see the more sustained effect on the right given the dose over the same time period. Then, you can look here in terms of people with CKD, heart failure, diabetes, and then the different levels of potassium achieved. Um, And again, these are the pre-specified groups that were looked at, and this is in the first 48 hours. And so, this drug was well tolerated. There were no treatment-related SEs and GI side effects were very, very low. Edema clearly was, at the highest dose, was seen in 50% of the patients. But hypo, hypokalemia at the high dose um, was also seen. So again, depends on the kidney function that you're starting with. The better your kidney function, the greater the likelihood at high doses that you're going to see hypokalemia. The amethyst study is a study that I led. This is with Pteromir. It's a phase two steady design, and this looks with pateromere in different levels of potassium. So you can read the criteria there for you yourself, and we had two cohorts. Cohort one, we discontinued RAS blockade and started Losartan in everybody, and added spironolactone after two weeks if the BP control was not there. In cohort two, we simply continued the RAS and added spironolactone. And we had mild hyperkalemia and moderate. So mild up to 5.5, moderate greater than 5.5, but less than 6. And then we used the three doses of pteromir. And here we gave it BID, even though the FDA label is for once a day, this is what you got. And this, again, was a one-month study, but we continued follow-up for one year. And this is the one-year data. You can see that we had very nice reduction in potassium. It doesn't matter if you were in the mild or moderate group. It was sustained for up to a year. And then what we wanted to see is if you stop it, do you go right back to where you were? And the answer is yes, you go back, but not back to where you were. You go back up to about five in a month. So again, very important. What about side effects? I told you constipation is by far the most common. Changes in magnesium were seen, but again, not clinically significant. And again, there was really nothing else that was significant that was seen here in terms of adverse events. Now, if you look at hemodialysis, everybody wants to do hemodialysis. They think that's going to fix everything. And they are wrong. And I'm telling you this as a nephrologist. So take a look. I mentioned this earlier, but I want to just show you the slide here. And this is not one study. There are multiple studies. A four-hour hemodialysis session removes 90 milliequivalents of potassium. All right. And when you stop the dialysis, the serum potassium rebounds. And if you check it again in four hours after you've checked it, it's not as low as you think it is. So just keep that in mind. And by the way, doing 0K baths or 1K baths is not done anymore. And the reason it's not done anymore is because that's been found to actually precipitate arrhythmias. So you have to understand this is about equilibrium and balance, and potassium is an intracellular ion, and the heart disapproves of dramatic changes in intracellular ions. Now, the dialyze is a study in dialysis patients, hence the clever name. This is a multi-centered, double-blind, phase 3 randomized trial, and this is looking at SZC to reduce the incidence of pre-dialysis hyperkalemia. So they took people on dialysis with persistent hyperkalemia, K of greater than 5.4 after long intradialytic intervals, or a K of greater than 5 after at least one short Dialytic interval, and this was adequately powered. And then they randomized people to SEC daily for eight weeks or placebo for eight weeks. And here are the results. If you're on SEC, you got very nice reductions in potassium. If you're on placebo, you got no reductions in potassium. So there were 42% of the people that actually were responders. And this was not high dose, this was moderate dose. So again, keep in mind, it has a very usefulness, very good usefulness, and it's very well tolerated. And speaking of that, when you take a look at the side effects, you can see, interestingly here, in greater than 2% of the patients, constipation and diarrhea were the ones that were there. But look at the placebo. Placebo had just as many. So there really was no significant difference in side effects. So just keep that in mind. So what are the recent and ongoing studies with the new K-binders? Well, there's a number of studies going on. Prioritize, uh, heart failure is going on. And the question is, can SEC optimize RAS inhibition in patients with heart failure? And that study is, I think it's finished. It's close to finished. But of course, with COVID, we had issues with recruitment. There's Diamond which is looking at pitiramir and looking at RAS tolerance in people with heart failure and CKD. That trial was ended by the company, but the follow-up has continued. So we will see data here probably early next year. There's the DIPO study with SEC enabling patients with hyperkalemia to eat a plant-rich diet. So that's another type of study. There's platinum, which looks at pitiramir as adjunctive therapy in patients requiring urgent hyperkalemia management. There's GRAZE, which is a phase four study, looking at SCC and uh, enabling patients with hyperkalemia on hemodialysis to eat a more liberal fruit and vegetable diet. And then finally, there's LIFT, where SEC is looking at enabling patients with advanced CKD and heart failure to achieve RAS doses without hyperkalemia. Now let me just tell you about prioritize. That's a multi-center double blind phase two study that is randomizing to determine if SZC allows continued use of RAS therapy. You can see the criteria there. And there's a two-week screening period and the randomization is there as you can see it. The results are here and you can see here that the interesting important note here Is when you look at the percentage of trial was terminated because of COVID. So, this is obviously not going to give you any statistical significance because you didn't have the duration. That's the bad news. But I think the important thing is if you go over to the MRA at target dose. So that's spironolactone at target dose. You had more people there on that than you did in the placebo group. Now I'm sure if we continued this, there would have been significance here. But I want you to know that people did try this. And I can tell you in in my personal practice, I I have significant number of people on drugs that they couldn't tolerate without these binders. Here's the safety profile. Then there's the LIFT study, which is a single center study, double blind, looking to see if SZC allows for rash use in people with heart failure and CKD. And you can see the inclusion criteria there. There's also a quality of life assessment here. And this looks at 10, mil, 10, grams, sorry, 10 grams initially. Initially, you have to take SEC three times a day for two days. And after that, you can adjust the dose to whatever you want. But here, it's, it's usually daily. Here, they gave it three times a day. And people got ramapril, very low dose. Ramipril five, Ramipril ten, and then they went to Spiro up to fifty milligrams. So I think you'll all agree that's challenging when you got to the highest dose. And that we'll see what happens there. The Diamond study I already told you about. This was really uh, a study that was really looking at an outcome. Twenty-three hundred plus patients stopped early uh, because the sponsor just didn't want to fund it anymore. Uh, not because of anything else, but the sponsor allowed for continued follow-up of all these patients and is su- supplying drug, et cetera. And so you, here you have pateromere once a day versus placebo. We don't have the results. We'll see what's happening probably early next year. And then we have the platinum study, which again, you can see the, the uh, outline here. This is a phase four study. And this is kind of interesting because this is comparing pteromir to SZC. It's placebo-controlled, active comparator. Uh, this is definitely not going to be done until well into next year, but hopefully it will give us some information. This is only, it's not an outcome study. It's only looking at potassium reductions, but there you have it. And then the DIPO study is in people with advanced CKD that basically looks at SZC at Um, uh, tailored for really looking at dietary freedom, giving you more freedom with the binder to eat things like bananas and tomatoes, which you normally can't be eating if you're on a potassium-restricted diet. So can cane binders allow patients with CKD to eat more healthy diets? This is really, you know, the big question And that's what some of these studies are trying to answer. And basically, uh, this is an issue that is very important to the patients, for sure. And I can tell you, because I preach the low-K diet, many patients start off with good intentions, and after a while, they just can't. So this allows them to eat a healthier diet. So with that, I'm going to turn to Joanna, And ask her what she thinks about this and how does she use this or or does she?
3: Well, I think the dietary issue that you bring up is is critical because, you know, um, the patients that we talk to, I mean, I've had some patients where when they start on a binder, they think, oh, this gives me kind of, you know, freedom, so to speak, to eat more potassium. I don't have to be as concerned about it. And so I think that's one thing in terms of education that we can address with them is to, to discuss that this does not mean you you know you have a free card to eat whatever potassium-containing foods you want, but it's part of your regimen now to prevent some of the therapies that we have in your dietary intake that you're currently on to you know prevent hyperkalemia. So that's that's one thing that I think I've observed um, with that. But I think it will be interesting to see with more attention paid to diet what some of those those studies um, you know show. And I wondered, um, do you have any comments on the studies that have been done? I mean, and I've read the the studies that that gave the approval for the current potassium binding agents, but was there any, um, I guess, effort to try to capture what their dietary intake was in those studies? I'm thinking no.
1: Uh, You are correct. Uh, We talked about this and we thought that it would be a lot of heavy lifting for very little uh, benefit because most patients... um, they will start, I can tell you from clinical experience, you'll get maybe one, two weeks, they'll do it. And then by the third week, they're getting weak. By the by, the time they come back for the visit, they've said, look, we tried, but I, I just can't do it. And I cut back, but I really just can't follow this. And by the way, these binders are limited in their binding. And just like cholesterol medication, a lot of people are on cholesterol-lowering medication. They think, oh, my God, I can just I go out and have steak and, and uh, all kinds of high-fat foods. Bottom line is you can eat through the statin and you can eat through the binder. So you have a little more freedom, but you don't have the, as you correctly pointed out, you don't have the freedom that you think you have, uh, but it's better than nothing. And I think that's really the point.
3: Right. And it's also critical to point out how important the dietitian is in, in managing these patients, um, you know, throughout to educate them on what potassium containing foods there are, and we know that that compromises a little bit of nutritional value to some degree um, with some of the you know fruits and that type of thing that they may be eating. So that, that's a critical role, I think, in that multidisciplinary group.
1: Well, I mean, just for the listeners, let me quickly give you a list of things that people don't really appreciate. So spinach, avocados, nuts, the good stuff, not peanuts, uh, dried fruit, cantaloupe, watermelon, Um, tomatoes. I mean, uh, potatoes, sweet potatoes, uh, pretty restrictive if you ask me in terms of, of what you can and cannot eat if you start restricting high potassium foods. And there's more. I mean, I'm not giving you everything. I'm just giving you a snapshot. So it's a tough diet to follow, really. Tell me, how do you use oral potassium binders?
3: So that's our segue into the next discussion. And so this is titled, you know, where do oral potassium binders fit into inpatient management? But I'm gonna tell you there's not a lot of slides showing that exact information. We're gonna have some discussion on this, but let's talk a little bit, because um, George introduced in the beginning discussion, a little bit of information on how, um, you know, what the incidence of hyperkalemia is in the inpatient setting, but there's not a whole lot of, of data out there. So let me start off here by talking about you know a little bit of what we know about hospital-acquired hyperkalemia. And from the audience here, a lot of pharmacists, it's interesting to note that there is information to suggest and support that there's drug-induced causes that we have to think about. We've been talking about that with RAS inhibi- inhibition and all those things, but there are other agents as well. So this is a study that was done um, in an older population, so patients older than 75, Um, looking at a four-year period of uh, hyperkalemic events and, you know, what was associated with those events. And so if you look at the number that they had, about, you know, just over 470 hyperkalemia events, but the majority of those were considered drug-induced. Of those, there were multifactorial causes, meaning it could not just be they were on a drug that caused hyperkalemia, but maybe they also came in because they had acute kidney injury that had developed and they were also continued on a high-risk medication. So that made, you know, approximately 80% of those events avoidable, okay? So I think the message here is for, you know, pharmacists and for everybody involved in the care of, of patients in the hospital setting, we have to think about those risk factors for hyperkalemia. So one is the disease states that we've mentioned. The other is, you know, what agents they're on. And this study further looked at what drugs were associated with hyperkalemia. So they they identified agents they looked at whether it was appropriate or not to have them on these agents and also rated the avoidability. So I think they had a couple of of raters in here and they used various scales for causality and appropriate use and and avoidability that they rated. But if you see here, the list shows um, as not surprising, right, potassium supplements, were at the top of the list in terms of a cause. So with someone, you know, I can think of the scenario, maybe somebody on a a loop diuretic, they were getting a potassium supplement, maybe they come in with acute kidney injury. Um, You know, I mean, many things should be stopped at that point, but maybe they were continued on a potassium um, agent. So it was inappropriate also in a significant portion of those individuals as well. And it was considered, you know, a very likely avoidable event. But things uh, that are also on this list are heparin. So low molecular weight heparins, uh, you know, unfractionated heparin um, because of the effect of uh, on the uh, aldosterone, beta blockers, of course, RAS inhibitors, um, potassium-sparing diuretics, immunosuppressant agents, you know, smaller proportion. But I think the message here is always looking at whether there's a drug-induced cause is important. And we've also noted the importance of diet, but these are, you know, it's the whole package that I think we have to look at here. So. Um, You know, again, from the standpoint of what we do on the inpatient side, I think minimizing their risk by altering drug therapy would be a key uh, event that we can do or a key intervention that we have. So with regard to um, some of the other information that's available, we're kind of switching gears here. This actually shows us pharmacists being involved very specifically to reduce hyperkalemia. Now, this is in an outpatient setting, and, I, you know, the reason really to kind of show this here is, is there a similar approach kind of on the inpatient side that we could adopt? This is actually from um, Latin America. It's looking at a heart failure clinic and pharmacists being involved with patients at high risk. So they would do a medication review looking for drug-related problems. They would interview the patient, right, to ask them what over-the-counter medications they were taking. Are they on dietary supplements? What type of diet are they on? As was mentioned earlier, the DASH diet is, you know, high potassium. So understanding what they're eating is important, but then developing a plan. And part of their plan, um, interestingly enough, was adjusting the timing of medications. So for example, if they were on two medications known to cause hyperkalemia um, in terms of drug levels being high at the same time, you know, if you believe that the hyperkalemia to some uh, extent is related to drug concentrations, and there could be some debate about that, but they were adjusting the timing of medications that were hyperkalemic. And then they would educate the patient to empower them to be able to make changes in their regimen. So they had this, what they called multi-dimensional intervention that they were doing. And this is a busy slide, but what they were looking at is in the population that they screened and had available for their intervention, they had a sample of 615 patients roughly I think about 480 of those were in their pharmacist multi-dimensional intervention group, and the other patients did not receive that intervention. Um, In the population as a whole, they had 132 hyperkalemic events. But the point of showing this slide is that they tried to look at really the risk factors for hyperkalemia. And the the boxes here are showing the probability of developing hyperkalemia and the percent of individuals with the, the given characteristic. But it shows that ACE inhibitor max dose, um, as well as did they have heart failure, reduced ejection fraction, did they have chronic kidney disease, and did they or did they not receive this pharmacist-based intervention? All the, those four different factors um, were associated with a you know likelihood of hyperkalemia. So in other words, if they had max dose ACE inhibition, if they were on If they had heart failure, if they had CKD, four or five, that was a higher risk of hyperkalemia. But if they received this pharmacist intervention, they had a reduced risk of hyperkalemia. Okay. So that's kind of the message of this slide. So, you know, a lot of, um, you know, limitations of these types of studies and and whatnot. But I think the, the point here is there was attention being paid very specifically to the risk of hyperkalemia. Um, So if we kind of flip back to the inpatient side and and what happens when patients come in the hospital, um, you know, the illustration here is really to show that the patient should always remain at the center, but you have multiple clinicians and practitioners, you know, and specialists, et cetera, seeing this patient, right? And so if we're talking about, you know, a hyperkalemia risk, if we kind of put this in here, I think it still has to be a multidisciplinary type of situation. So in other words, a patient comes in they have hyperkalemia, um, they're seen by the hospitalist, maybe there's somebody with acute kidney injury and the nephrologist is seeing them and, and putting very specific recommendations in. Um, maybe they implement a change in drug therapy, but that has to be enacted on by you know, all players that are counseling that patient and making changes and looking at their regimen. So does that always work? Not necessarily, but I think just being aware of some of the limitations of of the team approach and and you know the the advantages, but also limitations when you have multiple players involved becomes important. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll ask you, George, what you think of, and, and we'll come back to some of the recommendations from the the hospital setting and collaboration, but. You know, you asked me kind of what's the inpatient use of potassium binders, and, you know, what I'm going to say here is it's a bit fragmented right now because we have patients that come in that, you know, maybe they've been on a potassium binder outpatient, but that may get stopped when they come into the hospital for a variety of reasons. If they have acute kidney injury, you know, that would be a, a reason to stop it, Um so the the question always becomes, do they need to continue it when the patient comes in the hospital? The other issue is, is it somebody that developed hospi- the, uh, hyperkalemia during the inpatient setting, and do they need to be initiated on a binder? And if so, do they receive it at discharge? So there's a lot of questions, and I think issues that come up on the inpatient side. I'll open it up to you for kind of comments at this point, and then we'll come back to maybe some of the other things about collaboration here.
1: Well, you're, uh, you, you make very good points, and I would say your picture on the right is exactly what's happening now. Uh, The patient is really not educated much at all about diet or what's actually happening to them. They're given a list of orders, and they're expected to follow them. The patient doesn't understand half of them. The problem is really defining the, the, the way it works at our place. The hospitalist will have it. And then a phone call is made, depending on what the concomitant conditions are. If they have kidney disease, the nephrologist will be called. If they've got kidney disease and hypertension, I'll be called. And we, the nephrologists in our institution, are kind of the kings of these binders. And others really don't go there unless we tell them to go there. There's a subgroup of heart failure cardiologists that will go there, but that's it. So I think people are unfamiliar with these. They're scared to use them. There's one on the formulary. Many of the hospitalists don't even know about this. They're just finding out about it. So there's, there's education first to the, the people in charge. And then this education, as you nicely have in this figure, has to be translated to the patient. And if the patient comes in on a binder, I got to tell you, unless they've got major GI issues, Uh, or they're hypokalemic, I'm not so sure you can hold the binder for a while, but you may want to reinitiate because acute kidney injury, by the way, is a common cause of hyperkalemia. So, And it's not going to really affect the kidney abnormally. Likewise, the most hospital formularies, not all, but most hospital formularies do have a binder on board. So unless you're in a very small hospital in rural areas, they may not, but in major cities, these exist, and these really need to be used much more than they are, and the patient, whatever the patient's therapy is in the hospital, they need to go home on this, period, and they need to be educated as to how to take it and why they're taking it, and that's why the dietitian, along with either the pharmacist or the physician, whoever is going to educate the patient on this, is critical, because if the patient doesn't understand it, they're not going to take it it's as simple as that
3: absolutely absolutely and the and the scenario of acute kidney injury i mentioned stopping the binder really because in some of those situations they they've been on ras inhibition and that may get discontinued and so in conjunction with that sometimes the the potassium binder gets stopped because let's just hold everything see where they are and and kind of go from there so a lot of different scenarios and you know for the audience out there i know that people are in many different environments you and i have talked about kind of our clinical practices um you know i'm in a hospital where I'm on a nephrology consult team, so we have opportunities to intervene kind of real time as we're going around seeing patients. Um, and we have ED pharmacists as well, who may be intervening at the point of you know contact there in terms of uh, identifying hyperkalemia and, and making those decisions. But there are other um, folks who maybe they're not as um, in an environment where they're as close to the patient. Maybe they're you know looking at the orders more for a potassium binder that comes to them and trying to make an evaluation of um, you know the appropriateness and and then there's also pharmacists that may be involved in discharge counseling. and now, hey, they were on this drug in the inpatient setting, do they need to be continued outpatient? So there's a lot of um, you know, communication that needs to happen regardless of what, what setting you're in. And it's a, it's a wide variety there. And that'll lead me really to um, kind of the next slide looking at you know addressing the um, issue of discharge planning and preventing readmissions. And we know there's lots of reasons that patients are readmitted and hyperkalemia is certainly among them. But a lot of these entities, um, AHRQ, the Society of Hospital Medicine, the National Quality Forum, and CMS are addressing the need for process improvement in terms of medication reconciliation, collaborative care, and follow-up to enable um, you know really better coordinated care and empowering the patient. And hopefully that's at the, the heart of all of these. Um, but that's an important factor in terms of the collaborative care aspect here. So in part of these uh, guidelines, and I believe this is when was in the, um, let me flip back here for just a second, the Society of Hospital Medicine, they have what's called the eight P's in terms of the the things to look at that would kind of predict whether a patient may have a uh, high likelihood of readmission. And so for the, the audience here, we know that at the top of the list here in our mind is really problems with medications. And we know the more medications patients are taking the higher their risk of readmissions, and the disease states we've just talked about—heart failure, you know, reduced ejection fraction, which just heart failure across the board, chronic kidney disease, diabetes—I mean, not only are these patients at high risk because of their disease states, and that's one of the the uh, Ps on here as well, principal diagnosis—but the fact that they need different classes of medications, as we've talked to, talked about as part of their guideline-directed medication therapy, you know, puts them at, at risk. And so if we kind of add another layer here of thinking about additional considerations specific to hyperkalemia, the fact that they're on RAS inhibitors, um, you know, we're, we have mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, NSAIDs, you know, we, we have lots of different drugs that are in our, our, our toolbox with these, with these uh, disease states. There's a lot of different considerations here. And chronic kidney disease could certainly be added to the list of uh, diagnoses that would warrant, you know, a risk of readmission. We know that readmissions in those patients are, are certainly high. So this is where I think there's a, a big opportunity for for lots of coordinated care, and they identify really the key components of successful transitions of care. You know, being this multidisciplinary coordination. So you know, we try to fix things and sometimes patch things as much as possible on the inpatient side but when that patient goes home if they need a potassium binding agent you know the one example of many that we're talking about that needs coordinated care there needs to be um you know buy in by everybody and the pharmacist being involved i think there's a lot of things that could certainly be at play here and if we just flip here to you know medication reconciliation that's a key function, right? And so, um, you know, many of the folks in the audience here may be thinking, well, I don't just reconcile medications. I do kind of comprehensive medication management, and that's absolutely wonderful. But we know medication reconciliation is a key piece because if the patient comes in and we don't know what they were doing, right, and if they get discharged and we don't tell them what, you know, the follow-up is and make sure there's appropriate follow-up, then we've done a disservice to our patients. So this slide is really illustrating the Kind of key pieces that go into an appropriate medication reconciliation and trying to get the best possible medication history. And by the way, for folks in the audience, that does include for end stage kidney disease patients, calling the dialysis unit. It's amazing to me how many times that is omitted from. Um, you know, a med rec for a patient. So I always have my students call the outpatient unit and say, I need to get the treatment meds the patient's getting. You know, maybe they are on a potassium binder because we know there's one approved for dialysis patients, and maybe that would not be captured unless we, you know, we're able to get some of that information from the outpatient unit. The flip side of that is also, you know, on discharge, making sure we know where their outpatient follow up is, uh, and and being appropriate with regard to. Um, you know, communicating that follow-up to the patient as well. So George, I'll open it up to you here in terms of commenting on kind of the complex complexities rather of the inpatient admission and, and these pieces at the admit and discharge.
1: Well, I think the, the slide summarizes it nicely. I think fundamentally there needs to be a priori people specifically designated to educate the patient depending on the disease state. I think in this situation with potassium, there's no question that the dietitian, the hospitalist, and the pharmacist are really the three key people that really need to be uh, involved here. Nurses are always involved, but they're simply just reiterating orders. I think they can be taken out of the equation and the other three put in so that the patient understands what's actually going on. It can be explained to them in great detail. And rather than a three-minute special and signing 50 forms, I think it really should be focused more on communication.
3: Right. I think it's all those players that are involved, and sometimes our nurses end up, you know, doing the discharge counseling to some degree too, just based on, you know, the volume of patients as well. And think sure. about think about the um, what you tell patients, right? Who get these agents, get the, the potassium binding agents. It's not as simple as taking a pill, right? No. It's it's a powder. You've got to add a certain amount of liquid, but not give them too much, especially you know, if they're volume restricted and those types of things, but, um, making sure they know how to take it. So have you had a lot of, um, I mean, do you have folks that are doing that counseling for your patients when they,
1: uh, bottom line, uh, the short answer is no, we're doing that counseling because yeah. there's really no system set up that that's going to happen. If a potassium binder is being given, who's ever prescribing it needs to do the counseling.
3: Yeah. And then the drug interactions, you know, with both of these, um, agents, you know, the Uh, SCZ, you know, we know that they have to be separated from other medications by at least two to three hours, depending on which agent you're using. That is almost impossible to do when you think about the number of medications a lot of these folks get.
1: Well, I I mean, that's true. That's true. But what we found with peteromeric, which is really the one, I mean, the, the only three major drugs informed, of course, commonly used, metformin, Um, you know, I I think uh, with a thyroid preparation, and then I think there's an antibiotic. Those are the three that have really been found to have true uh, binding properties that are going to screw them up. But what we do is we tell them, look, get up, take your meds. And before lunch, if you have lunch at noon or 11 or, you know, one, then you take the pteromir and then you go from there with it with the s c c there's not as much of a problem, and there's not as much issues because it's a totally different molecule, so there it's a volume problem
3: absolutely yeah so so you know it's working with the patient, knowing what else they're getting, knowing their diet, and trying to help- help them come up with the best regimen so I think that's good advice as far as as that timing so um you know this this last couple of of slides here just make the point makes the point that if we have you know the transitions of care that's coordinated. There is evidence showing reduced, more you know, better outcomes, reduced mortality, reduced readmissions. And this is actually a compilation, I think, of over ninety studies on an international basis, looking at patients who are um, older with at least one chronic condition that met the the criteria, and following them up for eighteen months and showing a lower risk of of readmissions and and some reduction in mortality as well. So. You know, I think the message here, there's a, a lot of outcomes we can look at, but you know, making sure that there is um, that communication and that somebody is following up uh, with that patient. And you know as as these agents have been out longer, I think more primary care physicians, other um, providers are learning more about their use and um, being able to be more comfortable with that as well. So I think that's an important piece. And making sure that the patient knows, what is happening at every step? Okay, and that's just really what this this slide is illustrating. Making sure they they know what their care plan is, they're educated, and they have some kind of um, you know self management support that they're they're able to to follow through and 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 act on these things. The other piece of this, which you know is we'd be remiss if we don't mention this, is we can tell the patients all we want to how to take the medications, try to come up with this wonderful you know medication regimen. That hopefully improves outcomes and folks with all these disease states but if the patient can't get the drug they're not going to take it so you know there's a lot of um, my colleagues out there that probably do more with this than i do and it, a little bit more on the outpatient setting uh, but prior authorization is important so i think if we know that there's somebody that's going to be started on one of these oral uh, potassium binding agents getting approval you know proactively as much as we can before we actually have to prescribe it, you know, uh, it's important. And so there's a lot of different um, prior authorization tools out there. This is an example, Cover My Meds is listed here. Um, There's a colleague of mine that has talked about the importance of a standardized request letter being in place, referring to any guidelines that are there where maybe you have to say they failed SPS. You know, I think there's some that, that require that statement to be be in there or you know, having to have another statement that ad- addresses why they are going to be started on one of these uh, potassium binding agents. And we know the price varies depending on the individual patient, the conditions, et cetera. But on average, you know, we're, we're probably looking at, for, for most patients, less than $100 a month if they're able to get some kind of assistance. And you know, I think everybody should be aware of, of going to the manufacturer's websites for these agents um, to be able to see what patient assistant programs they have. And being able to work through this as well, and it also, you know, illustrates at least in the dialysis unit having a social worker that helps being be involved in in these pieces and getting access. So, so that is a key part that I think everybody needs to be aware of as as well. So, George, what would you say about the, these? Uh, you know, have you had a lot of um, challenges with with authorization?
1: We've had uh, zero challenges, but we have this down to a fine art. It took us about six months with the help of, of the uh, uh sponsors of some of these drugs but we we've got it down it, it can be done it can be done um especially with one versus the other but it, it it's good it's good you can do it
3: That's right so i think it's important if somebody's starting to use this more in their clinical practice of of finding out from colleagues you know and and others that are that are doing this you know what their strategy was So so I think it's important to realize that, that all of these are, are resources. I think the, the pharmacist certainly can play a role, not only on the outpatient setting, but there are you know measures on the inpatient side that we need to, to address with medication reconciliation and making sure patients are on appropriate uh, drug therapy as well. So with that, George, I'll turn it back over to you. If there are other points that you feel we should uh, discuss, we can do that. And I'm happy to, to address any other
1: no, I appreciate it. I think it was very thorough, and, and thank you very much for that. I, I thought it was great. So just to summarize everything that you uh, were exposed to today and should have learned, patients who are at high risk of readmission for hyperkalemia can be identified from clinical data. Newer potassium binders work faster and are tolerated better than SPS. They enable life-saving therapy, that is RAS blockade and MRA use, in patients with CKD and heart failure pharmacists can prevent unnecessary rehospitalization for hyperkalemia by collaborating with other healthcare providers to reduce risk completing an accurate medication reconciliation and initiating oral K binders that patients can access and continue using at home so with that thank you very much for listening and now it's your turn to ask us questions thank you Hello, I'm Dr. George Bakris, and I'm here with Dr. Joanna Hudson, and we're going to answer questions for you. We've been doing this as we're going along, and uh, hopefully this has been very informative, and we hopefully are going to augment that as we go. Now, the first question that we have here is, with sodium zirconium cyclosilicate, the issue of the sodium load, this has always been an issue, and how do you best manage the edema? And I will tell you that edema has never been an issue with this agent unless you're at the maximum dose. 15 grams a day is the maximum dose and you will get edema issues in some people, especially you have to be very careful in people with heart failure if you're using that level of a dose. At five milligrams a day, edema is not an issue. And even at 10, since most of these patients are on diuretics, it's not really an issue. Joanna, I don't know. Have you noticed any issues with this?
3: well, not not specifically at the doses that that you've kind of referred to. I mean, I think everybody sees that with a five gram dose of the sodium zirconium that there are you know four hundred milligrams of sodium, and that that can be a concern, but I think it's again clinically just a matter of of trying to keep them on the approved doses and and monitoring.
1: Very good. You know there's a question here that's actually important. And unless you don't realize it it, it, it can be more important than not. What's the optimal dosing interval of potassium binders in patients taking thyroid medications? The, the bottom line is there is a drug interaction between Pteromir and Synthroid. And basically, you need to space out taking those. If you're taking Pteromir, if you're using Pteromir with thyroid medications, you need at least three hours between dosing. So a lot of times what I'll do is take, have the patient take the pteromir at breakfast and they can take the thyroid medicine at lunch or vice versa, but you need that. With SZC, you don't need to worry about that. I mean, anything to add, Joanna?
3: No, I think that's good advice. And I think having um, pharmacists, you know, there are obviously pharmacists in this audience, but sitting down with the patients and looking at their full medication regimen to try to come up with a, a timing uh, for a lot of these um, in terms of the drug interactions will be important.
1: There's there's kind of two questions here. One, they're they're related, and this talks about outpatient management. So this is important. A lot of times, and most people have grown up with KXLate, which you know, if you can tolerate more than two days of it, good luck. But the reality is these agents have been tested daily use over a period of one year, each of them. And they've done quite well and they're well tolerated. Now, the question is what are the best appropriate I, I agents to use and and about what, what do you do with, do you dose them every day? Do you dose them every other day? And I would just say from my standpoint, if a patient already has constipation or they have diabetes and they've got gastroparesis, you probably want to go away from agents that are going to cause constipation, like pteromir, and use SCC. On the other hand, if they have heart failure and especially... If they have volume problems, volume management problems, you may want to start with pteromir and go that way. So those are the things you got to look at it for the patient. Do you need to use them every day? You don't need to use them every day. And in fact, in many cases, I've had patients taking them every other day. As long as they're watching their potassium intake, it's really not an issue. Joanna, what do you think?
3: I I think that's very good advice. And and the key is the monitoring and follow up. And so the important thing is also having the patient come in for that follow up um, to be able to be, you know, counseled, look at all the the drug interactions and everything that we refer to talk about diet um, also talk to them about how, how they're getting their medications. I know for a lot of people, Thinking about is there are there patient assistance programs or there you know difficulties with access to the medication as well. So all of those pieces are are important to monitor and and make sure that we're we're discussing it with each of these patients.
1: Yeah, very 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 important point. I want to make a comment more physiologic but relevant. Everybody's worried about hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia. It turns out in a very recent meta analysis that was done. Uh, looking at, I can't even remember, 30 trials, what kills you is hypokalemia, not hyperkalemia. So that's number one. And number two, the very important point about hyperkalemia is it is not what the level is. It's how fast you got there. So if you got a rise in potassium very quickly, that's more likely to kill you than a slow, uh, indolent rise over the span of a few weeks. So, just keep that in mind when you're looking at these levels. That's number one, and number two, the bottom line is the how do you somebody wants to know how you cure hyperkalemia? Well, that's extremely difficult, and a kidney transplant would probably help you in some ways, although some of the medicines for rejection cause hyperkalemia. so you have to be ever vigilant. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Joanna.
3: No, I think you captured that very well. And, um, you know, I think in the program itself, if the audience remembers, we talked about different disease states causing hyperkalemia and different thresholds of concern. And then the nephrology um, guidelines really have a higher threshold. And it's for the reasons that Dr. Backris discussed that rise in potassium, but certainly for for many patients who have chronic kidney disease, it may be more of a gradual increase versus a, a sudden rise where we may be more concerned about the emergent problems with hyperkalemia. So I think those are very good points.
1: You know, somebody wants to know, we've done all this k bashing. Is there a role anymore for k in treating hyperkalemia? Well, first of all, let me just tell you, k was approved in 1958. The bar for getting approval back then, you can just step over the stick and you get approved. A much higher bar today. So of course, we're realizing all these things with gut necrosis and other things with k If you cannot afford anything else, if there is nothing else, there is a role for k axalate, and you can use it PRN and it is still being used uh, in the community one day here, one day there, but it doesn't fix anything chronically. And you can't really depend on it because it's highly variable in terms of the amount of potassium that's being removed. I still see it used occasionally but it's certainly not in the mainstay. I mean, Joanna, what's your experience with this? I,
3: I would agree. I think that, um, I think over time, the uptake of the newer potassium binders um, is is occurring. I think it's just a matter of, you know, in a hospital, for example, are they able to adopt one of these agents on the formulary and replace SPS? And, you know, that's, that's where things are moving to. It's just a matter of, I think, how accessible the medications are, and the longer they're out, I think those those issues get resolved a little bit more.
1: There's There are a couple of questions here, and there, they, they really link together with the central theme. And the central theme is really understanding where these binders are working and how long it takes them to work. So bottom line is the kidney handles 90% of the body's potassium, the gut, the distal colon handles 10%. And as kidney failure occurs, the distal colon handles up to 20%. So these agents work in the distal colon. It takes about six hours, seven hours to get there. And if you have diabetic gastroparesis, it may take longer. The advantage of the um, cyclos, cyclosilicate is that it changes and you get ammonium ion and you get changes in the upper part of the gut that actually transports potassium into the cell and changes the pH. So, that actually is a benefit, and it gives you the impression that it's working within an hour. The real effect is six, seven hours later, but you're getting some effect a couple of hours earlier. But tiramir, you're really not seeing any major effect for four to five hours. So, they do work, because the question here relates to if they missed hemodialysis, can you use these agents to normalize potassium levels? Well, I think it depends on what the potassium level is. If you've missed one hemodialysis, unless you're eating or drinking high potassium foods, it's probably not gonna be a major problem. You gotta miss a couple of treatments. But these agents certainly will help, but they're not gonna acutely lower anything. And, Joanna, what do you think?
3: I think that is a key point. we've had some questions in the chat during the session about, you know what is the relative effect of a lot of these different pharmacologic therapies that we have? And I think it's important to note that these newer binders are not approved for emergent treatment of hyperkalemia. So regardless of, you know, in the emergency department setting or in those types of situations, you have to use the other pharmacologic agents to shift potassium intracellularly, remove total body potassium, and then make a decision about whether they need these for more chronic therapy at that point.
1: That's excellent. And with that, unfortunately, our time has come to an end. But I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope that you've gotten something out of this. And on behalf of Dr. Hudson and myself, we really want to thank you for participating in this and wish you all a good day. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YVS 860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca LP.